Have, uh, have any of you ever been skydiving? You have? Really? Wow. I have n- never been skydiving before, but if things go according to plan, I never will. <laughs> because skydiving would require more faith than I have. It would require faith in the instructor, that he was confident, that he knew what he was talking about. It would require faith in the pilot, that he was at the proper altitude and over the proper site. Um, It would require faith in the altimeter to know when to deploy the parachute. It would require faith in the person who packed the parachute. It would require faith in the materials that the parachute was made of. It would require faith that the emergency chute would work if the primary chute failed. And it would require faith that I would land in a suitable place instead of power lines And I simply don't have that much faith. Jumping out of a perfectly functional airplane makes no sense to me. And most of us are reluctant to do things that don't make any sense to us. Either because we we fear that if I do this, it's going to bring harm to me, or because it doesn't make sense and it's a waste of my time and resources. And that's what makes the story of this man's interaction with Jesus so striking. You're not experiencing deja vu. This is the passage I read last week. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself said, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Father, may the words of my lips today, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. And uh, Lord, May we gain insight from it. Amen. It appears that God blesses when we're not able to see. If this man who was born blind is any indication, if we can take a lesson from this man, it seems that God blesses when we trust him without 
being able to see. It's a remarkable story. Jesus alone has taken note of this man. You look carefully at the text, and it says that as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. He was missed, it appears, by his disciples, but Jesus saw the man. And when the man was brought to the temple of uh, to the attention, rather, of the disciples at the temple, they wanted to know, well, where is the blame to be fixed? Was it this man or his parents that sinned? It's the question that a world alienated from God reflexively asks. Because if we can discover who's to blame and it's not me, then we can avoid responsibility. It's his fault, his problem. Jesus teaches his disciples here and us through this text that our concern should be for the kingdom of God, for bringing the blessing of God to people rather than asking, well, whose fault is this? Now, you know, in this case, it doesn't seem like there was any direct connection between some sin of this man or his parents and the blindness, but we've seen in the Gospel of John already Jesus' blessing and healing and caring for people who were in their condition because of their own sin. So there's a lesson for us in what Jesus does. But there's a lesson for us, I think, too, in this man's response. Now, you know, when, when, when people want to talk about someone, they usually do that out of earshot, right? They usually don't talk about someone right within earshot. And sometimes we'll hear somebody, you know, jokingly say, if somebody's doing that, saying, hello, you know, I'm right here, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, I don't think that Jesus' disciples were such cretins that they asked in the hearing of this man, hey, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? So I want you to picture the scene, if you can. This man has been blind from birth. He's been blind his whole life. He doesn't know what it is to see. He's sitting, begging. We'll find out later in the story that he's got a family. I suppose this is how he contributes to the family. He's sitting and he's begging. Jesus has just left the temple. Presumably, he's heading back to Galilee. If that's the case, he would have left uh, the temple on the northwestern side. So that's probably where he encounters this man. Jesus sees the man. He has some dialogue with his disciples. Spits on the ground makes mud, comes up and rubs it on the man's eyes. Uh, Let me say again, picture the scene. Because from this man's perspective, there's no indication uh, from the text that anything's been said to this man. He's sitting there begging, and all of a sudden, somebody's rubbing wet dirt in his eyes. And there's no indication that Jesus told the man why he was doing this, he just comes up and he does it. And without a word of explanation, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now now again, I say that this probably took place on the 
northwestern side of the temple complex, but it really wouldn't matter too much where outside the temple complex it took place. Because no matter what side of the temple mount they may have been on, there are closer pools than Siloam for this man to go to. Uh, We've already encountered the pool of Bethesda. That was pretty close to the temple on the west side. Closer even than that was a pool called the Pool of Israel, which is not mentioned in the New Testament, but there's another pool there as well. And and what Jesus does is without explanation, and, and it seems bizarre. He tells this fellow to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if you look at a map of the old city of Israel, if the temple complex is up here in the, in the, in the northern region, northwestern region, the, the, the old city wall is not square. It comes down and, and it juts out to the south, and it's in that jutting out that Siloam is. In other words... He sends this fellow about as far across the city as he can possibly go. The man's faith is astounding. I I blush to admit that I'm not sure that I would have the faith that this fellow had. I'm very happy to do things, take the recommendation of people for things that make sense to me. But if I'm told to do something that doesn't make sense to me? But this man does what Jesus tells him to do without any explanation. And he comes back seeing. Seems that God blesses us when we trust without being able to see. And you know, there's a flip side to that as well. I wonder how many blessings we miss because we won't do what God's word says, unless it makes sense to me. Physical blindness is not a pervasive condition. It's, it's not today, it's not a majority of people who are blind. And, uh, and, and even in the ancient world, wasn't, a pervasive condition. But being wise in our own eyes is. And the Bible gives us repeated warning about it. The prophet Isaiah says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Proverbs 12 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise listen to counsel. Proverbs 26, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than there is for him. In Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And I want you to note something about all of these warnings about being wise in our own eyes. We're not talking here about perversity. Perversity is when somebody commits themselves to a wrong course and out of pride or whatever it might be, stays on the course that's wrong. They know that it's wrong, but they stay on that course. That's perversity. That's not what's being spoken of here. What's being spoken of is people 
evaluating things for themselves and no one can tell them they're sure that they're right. You know, at the, at, the, at the turn of the last year, 2021, someone said very perceptively, it's amazing. Last year, all of my friends were medical and epidemiological experts. And now they're all constitutional scholars. And the internet has amplified our in-our-own-eyes wisdom. Sadly, at times, Christians seem to be the worst of the lot. And we do it with God, too. I'm happy to trust and obey as long as what you say makes sense. Happy to do, God, what you say as long as I can understand what the point of it is. Where does that come from? Well, it's a very old malady. Let me read to you the story of it. It'll probably be familiar to you. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the rebellion of humanity is rooted in a wisdom in our own eyes. I'll obey as long as it makes sense to me. I'll obey as long as I don't see a better way. And, and the temptation here, oh, it is, it's so insidious. Because human beings were made in the image and likeness of God, the early church fathers, you know, as they looked at that, they, they saw, they perceived, I think, correctly, that there was something in those two different words that the image of God was something static in us. It was just stable, that that's what we are. But the, but the likeness of God was how we were to be. You know, later theologians would talk about imaging God. They'd take the noun and they'd make it a verb. So they'd talk about, you know, the image of God is imaging God. We, we do that with the word adult, right? Adult is a noun, we make it a verb. I, I need to adult today, right? 
And, uh, and, and so theologians have done that, but they're onto something, at least the early church fathers thought that they were, that people were made in the image of God, but they were to grow up into the image of God, and they were to attain uh, eternal life. They were to be given access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How? By trusting God, by refraining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the insidious suggestion comes along and it says, you're a competent person. You know, God, God knows that this would be a quicker way for you to get there. And so what does the woman do? She evaluates. She says, well, the, the tree, it's good for food. And it's pleasant to the eye. And it's desirable for gaining wisdom. Aren't those things all good? Doesn't, doesn't God want those things for us? And ever since, we've been infected with the disease of being wise in our own eyes, of being evaluators and judgers of God's word, rather than merely doers of it. And, and I wonder, I, I think for myself, how many blessings do we forfeit because we simply won't do or won't simply do what God tells us to do in his word? And that is what makes this man's faith so remarkable. Faith is never so real, never so sweet, and never so difficult as when the directive makes no sense to us and we obey anyway because we trust God. And this man does. I say again, you know, you go back, you read this text. There's not a hint that Jesus said, hey, listen here now, I'm going to heal your eyes and here's how I'm going to do it. Without a word of explanation, he smears mud in the man's eyes, and then he sends this man, a blind man, to make his way clear across the crowded city to the furthest point to wash there. And the man doesn't say, well, well what's the point of this? Why should I? He doesn't say, that's awfully far to go. There's pools that are much closer than this. Can I go to one of them? He simply does what Jesus tells him to do, and he comes back seeing. And I ask again, how, how much blessing do we forfeit because we're wise in our own eyes, because we won't trust God, simply do what he says, what he tells us to do, unless it makes sense. And I want to ask you today, where you are struggling with this, I know that you are, because we all do. You know, I've known, sadly, I've known Christian people who have ended their marriages without any biblical warrant because they said, well, well, well we're, not just, we're just not happy together anymore, and, you know, God wants us to be happy. Well, I think God does want people to be happy. But you're going about it the wrong way if you think the way to gain happiness is to do something contrary to God's word. How many blessings do we miss because we evaluate God's word rather than obey it? 
Jesus told us, if a brother sins against you, go speak to him, just the two of you. It's a good principle. How many times have people said, but, but it's not going to work in my case. You don't know that fella. He's hard-headed. He's hard-hearted. He's obstinate. And, and, so, and so, Lord, let me explain to you why in my case there's an exception here. And we're good at it, explaining to God why my case is exceptional. Why what he's saying in, in his word, it's not going to work in my instance. In other words, friends, we're good at being wise in our own eyes. So I want to ask you again, where do you struggle with this? You know what God's word says? You look for the loophole. Doesn't make sense to you. You don't see how it could work, how you could be blessed in it. Blind man's faith is worthy of no, and it's worthy of our emulation. He doesn't question. He doesn't protest. He doesn't say, surely there are pools closer than Siloam. He doesn't say, can you at least tell me why I'm doing this? He didn't do any of that. But Jesus' word, he gets up, and with what must have been for him an enormous amount of effort, makes his way across a crowded city without being able to see, and through his obedience, he's blessed. He comes home seeing. And it seems that God blesses us when we trust him without being able to see. Will you? Will you trust him when you can't see? Father, as you uh, opened this man's eyes through faith, uh, so open the eyes of our hearts so that um, we may have faith. Lord, we're so prone to being wise in our own eyes. And so help us to see where we are and help us to set aside our excuses for why we can't do your word. Uh, Help us to set aside our propensity to twist your word, to make it say what we want it to say. Father, help us, we pray, to walk by faith in what you say you've done, by faith in what you tell us to do, and not by our sight. For, Father, our sight is limited and faulty and frail, but you are eternal and solid and strong. So help us to commit ourselves to you through Jesus our Lord, 